Well, I invite you to turn with me in the Bible to 2 Samuel 19 and 20. We'll be looking at just selected verses from those chapters today. And as we enter into July here, if you're loving this series through 2 Samuel, we went through 1 Samuel last year. If you're loving this series, uh, savor it. We've only got about uh, three weeks left or so, I think. In my uh, absence uh, next week, Adam Venable, one of the RUF campus ministers, has been with us before. He's going to come to share uh, God's Word. So uh, we will continue on with the, the series. If, if, if maybe you feel like it's time for this to come to an end, there's only a few more weeks left, and then we'll be rotating into our new sermon series. So a uh, reminder that, in a sense, we can we kind of look at these verses almost like a Shakespearean play or this section of Second Samuel, if you will, in that it's, you know, each week there's sort of scene one, scene two, scene three. We get a chance to, to see new parts of the story presented. And, of course, our chief character is King David. And we enter in this week again to another scene. I'll try to set the stage as we're going along for those who might be joining us for the first time today. But we see David at the beginning of this chapter. The scene opens, if you will, and he's mourning. He's mourning for the loss of his son Absalom. His son Absalom has rebelled against him and been leading really a huge part of the country, the people of God that David had been leading against David. Now Absalom is dead. Uh, David is moving to retake control. And as we enter into the verses today, we see that he sort of shrewdly gathers the support of Judah, which was the big southern tribe. So we'll call him the Texas of of the people of God. Uh, he, he's going to temporarily in chapter 20 lose the support of the, the northern large tribe. We'll call them New York State. OK, to give you some kind of picture of it. But in between. Uh, In between that gathering of support and that brief rebellion in chapter 20, in chapter 19 is situated a few verses that I really think will be encouraging and intriguing for us today. Uh, Three reunions that are portrayed there. One with a fellow who had previously cursed David. Another who had lied to get David's favor when David was on his way out of, of power briefly. So he was desperate. And one manipulated that. And a third who was the descendant of one of David's chief rival families, the family of Saul. These three, we see a reunion with David. And from this, we're going to take some some helpful insights, probably for our relationships. But more than that, we're going to see a picture, a prequel, a foreshadowing of Christ. Of how Christ is graciously reunited to us who so often go against him. So read along with me. We'll just be reading verses 16 through 30 in chapter 19 and then two verses in chapter 20. Again, this is David now approaching, coming back in to begin to retake things. And here are these encounters, these reunions. Verse 16, 2 Samuel 19. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with them were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, was with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. 
and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on that day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I've come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? The king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day came, the king came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, he said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, O Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. He's talking here about Ziba. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king. And the king said to him, Why speak of any further of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. And then verse 1 and 2 of chapter 20. Now there happened to be there a worthless man, whose name was Sheba, son of Birkai the Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would allow it to minister to us. We pray, Lord, that you would show us more about who we are, more about who you are, that we might grow in our relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I may have mentioned a few weeks ago, or some of you may know, in May, we had the joy as a family of traveling up to see extended Peter's family in central Pennsylvania. And while we were up there, the family, it was Memorial Day, got together one of the bigger gatherings that I've seen among the extended Peters family. Now, we don't get up there all that often, but everybody said, hey, that's good to see everybody. Oh, this is a big gathering. We had maybe 35 people there or so. We thought, wow, that's a, that's a pretty good-sized gathering of the Peters family. The other day, uh, my wife and I were standing out on our front porch, and, and some neighbors came by, and we got to talking. There's new folks that we've just, just met, and they were talking about a reunion that they were headed to with some family coming up. And so we, we said, it was the wife's side of the family, and we said, wow, so we just had this reunion. T- tell us about your reunion, uh, a pretty, you know, pretty big gathering. She said, no, not, not, that, not that big. We said, oh, well, well, how many? I mean, how many folks do you think are going to get together? She said, probably a hundred or more. 
probably be a hundred or more at this family reunion. I found out later from the husband, I said, you know, tell me about this. He, he said, there's actually like coordinators for various parts of the reunion, the entertainment, the registration, the t-shirt, t-shirt distribution for, for all of these things for this family reunion. Well, she went on, the wife uh, who was headed to this reunion, to, to tell me. She said, yeah, they can be good. Reunions can be good, but they can be tough sometimes, too. She said, a few years ago when we got married, and because we've got these extended family ties that we get together so regularly, she said, you know, I forgot. I totally missed one of the relatives of a relative of a relative, you know, the extended, extended, extended family. I forgot, you know, a person that I should have invited to our wedding. She said we ran into him, you know, not long after at one of the reunions. And he, he was not happy that he had been left out among the hundred from uh, from that event. Well, reunions can be a real blessing. They can be a real uh, struggle for us, too. If there's issues between people when we're reconnecting with one another and what I want us to see in these verses today is what what these reunions can kind of show us and how David handles them, how his relationship with God is shaping his response to these people who he, he really could respond quite differently to, but decides to respond a certain way. And then ultimately, again, how that is a picture of what we see in Jesus, of how Jesus responds to us. And we can summarize it this way. I, I think this is laid out in the sermon notes section in the back of your worship guide, if you want to turn there. That, that this main idea is really highlighted in our verses. That since God shows covenant faithfulness to the king, the king shows the same to all who seek reunion with him. We see that in David. We see that ultimately in Jesus Christ. And it shapes our lives, I trust. As I said, it, at one level, this passage is just about uh, human relational struggles. Uh, David is faced with three different challenges as far as reunion goes. Those who have been two-faced with him. Those who may ha- certainly had offended him to his face. And those he's not sure how to face. Maybe we've been in that boat, too, of having to interact with somebody who's been two-faced with us. Somebody who's offended us to our face or those we aren't really sure how to face. And we see that with David in these verses. We also, as I said, we see this picture of what uh, what ultimately Christ is going to do for us, for any who would seek reunion with him, despite our uh, going against him in our nature and our soul and our actions and our thoughts. Uh, take a look with me briefly at Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians, because I think this passage will help to highlight what I'm talking about there. <clears throat> Starting in chapter five, in verse ten, just read a couple of verses, and I, I may have mentioned these a, a few weeks ago too. Chapter five, starting in verse ten, describes this beautiful picture of reunion, reconciliation. It says that we can have with God. Through Christ. Starting at verse 10, it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is also known to your conscience. In a sense, it's saying here we're all going to have to, to meet the king, 
right? We have to meet the king as he's coming back in, in his reign. Jump on down to verse 14. It says, for the love of Christ controls us. I love that picture of the gospel life. We experience God's love and it controls us. It's conforming us to a new life. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, talking about Christ, of course. Therefore, all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And then read on with me. It says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. They just mean they, they saw him. They didn't see him for all that he was. They saw him just from a human standpoint. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old is past away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Listen to this. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And then it goes on to describe how we can extend that to others. But for our purposes today, I just want you to see, you see, jumping out of the pages of that passage, uh, the idea of reunion with God that we can have through Christ. It's a beautiful picture. The last thing we'll see and we'll touch on just briefly in these verses is not just that day-to-day application that we can take from it for our relations and not just the picture of what Christ will ultimately do to bring us into reunion uh, with him, but also the reality of rebellion. And we mentioned it. We saw it just briefly in chapter 20. So walk along with me through these these verses for a minute and, uh, and let's highlight a few things from them. The first thing we need to see is probably a bit of background. In chapter 19, I mentioned earlier that David is uh, he's weeping. The chapter begins with him weeping. And really, I think the end of 18 has him weeping, too. So it's a sorrowful time for him. And he's sorrowful about the loss of his son, Absalom. But as I think uh, Brandon Robbins mentioned when he was preaching last week, you know, bottled up in all of that in the situation with Absalom certainly is the sorrow he has over all the other failures and damage that really have come about because of his actions in a lot of regard. He failed morally early on. We saw with Bathsheba and Uriah that triggered literally an avalanche of problems. He failed in wisdom to seek to realize what was going on in his household and prevent the uh, incest and the murder that took place between his children. He failed to discipline Absalom you know, afterwards, and now he's, he's even at the beginning of chapter 19 sort of failing in the sense of ruining everybody's celebration who had come to his aid and defeated Absalom, and he's still kind of spinning around. And it's like he finally gets back oriented here in this chapter 19 and realizes, oh, okay, I've, I've got to go forward. And again, you see the gifts that God's given him of leadership, of being able to bring together people and alliances and so forth and move forward. But uh, but he's been spinning around for a while. And, and, and as he comes and stops spinning and moves forward, it's literally like a, a picture of the Jordan River. I know really it, it sounds like the reunion with Mephibosheth is maybe more in Jerusalem later. But, you know, just picture for our sakes, they're all sort of at this this river. And it's like this is a line that David's coming up to for reunion with with these folks. And, and, and we've got a word for what's happening here, don't we? Uh, I grew up a, a, a Cubs fan. Maybe this will illustrate it. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. And a few years ago when we were, we were up there, uh, my, my dad treated for us all to go to a Cubs game. 
Go down and watch the baseball game. And if you're any, if you're a Cubs fan or a fan of a similar kind of team, you know you sort of got to be a glutton for punishment in order to be a, a Cubbies fan. And it was actually a good thing to see that the Cubs lost 17 to 1, I believe. That was not a football score, folks. That was baseball. The Cubs lost 17 to 1 at that game that the boys were so excited about and went to. And it was a great experience for them because I looked at them and said, boys, if you want to be a Cubs fan, this was a great introduction. This is, this is the start of it. This is, this is all you need to know. Well, if you're going to be a, a Cubs fan, you've got to be a diehard fan, right? You've got to be able to stand with it through thick and thin. And we've got a term for folks that are the opposite, right? Fair weather fans. The teams went in, when the team's going well, jump on board. All of a sudden, a lot of gear on our car. All of a sudden, a lot of outfits we're wearing for it. You know, we're excited to catch along. We've probably all gotten suckered in by that. But fair weather fans. And, and this is what's happening with these folks that David encounters. Mephibosheth's a little bit different story. But Shimei, we know, had, had cursed David while he was headed out of, you know, off into sort of a, a short-term exile. This guy, uh, Zeba, has manipulated things to get in David's favor. And, and we see David meeting these fair-weather fans. How does he respond? Well, the first thing, let's look at Shimei. And, and, and here's what I see from these verses. David is able to allow harsh words, critical words, painful words to glance off of him because he ultimately knows that God is his defender. Shimei, again, earlier on, just a couple chapters earlier, we saw, and they're actually interesting, they all happen in the same uh, sort of paragraph earlier in 2 Samuel. And then here again, we see all three of these figures. So there's no doubt we're supposed to connect these all up. We're supposed to be seeing connection. Shimei, while David is leaving, his son has taken over. Shimei is just, you know, adding insult to injury. As if it's not bad enough that David's got to flee and leave, Shimei stands up there and decides he's going to be the self-proclaimed one to call down curses upon uh, David. And it was at that time that one of David's helpers wanted to Take out Shimei, and if you're like me, you're thinking, hey, go for it. That sounds like a good plan. This guy sounds like a thug. Let's get rid of him. Back in these verses today, we see the same thing. And it's the same guy that says, hey, David, you want me to go over and take care of this for you? Because I got, I got the sword right here. I'm ready to, ready to go. Got it all shined up, all sharpened. It's interesting when we're facing our critics and dealing with critics to decide how we're going to respond to that, isn't it? We've all had those situations. Maybe we've had them personally. Maybe we've had them professionally. Maybe we've got them in our, our family you know, household where there's some, some critical spirit going on there. And, and we've maybe even had people say some pretty bad things against us. Uh, I know I've dealt with that even as a, a church, uh, you know, church leader, if you will, trying to sort of do my best with my sinful capability, of course, and limited capability to minister to folks. And sometimes people just they, they, they they're upset with who I am or who our church is, too. Those are hard things to figure out how to handle. And it's interesting to see in David, who we know is far from a perfect person, that he's able to allow those curses that Shimei had voiced to deflect off of him. Why? How does he do that? He's able to do it because he ultimately knows that God is his defender. He does not have to defend himself because he knows that God is his defender. I'm not saying there aren't times we need to stick up for ourselves or speak our peace or whatever. But this passage is a good reminder, especially for you young people here, y'all that are, you know, elementary school, maybe uh, middle school, on into the high school stage. 
you know, your parents are, are here too, and, and they probably they probably remember it. That can be a stage where people get real critical, where folks will say something mean to you, young young ones, for no reason. You know, somebody at the lunchroom table at school or somebody at practice says something harsh to you, and you think, well, you know, what am I what do I do about that? Again, uh, that kind of thing goes on and on. You probably need to tell somebody about it, but ultimately, these passages remind us that for all of us who are in Christ. If our identities in Christ, we have in God a defender. We don't have to actually defend our own position. We know who we are because of God. And it's interesting um, uh, to, to figure out sort of what to listen to as well. Sometimes, as Proverbs says, there's some helpful input in the people that are criticizing us as well. At our General Assembly denominational meeting recently, where there's lots of speeches and folks getting up and sharing and usually, you know, very good points. But, you know, oftentimes there's going to be somebody get up and say something that you might disagree with. There's different positions on different issues. you got a bunch of preachers, a bunch of church leaders. They feel pretty strongly a lot of times about these God-centered matters. And, and so one of the uh, cautions that we were given by our moderator at the opening of the meeting was pretty interesting and kind of helpful for all of life. He, he said this, track with me. He said, you know, when somebody's speaking, he was talking about the microphones there, but in life, somebody's speaking and we don't really agree with a lot of what they're saying. He said, it's good to to think of them as a, a, a heap of dung, a heap of dung, a heap of manure in which is is contained at the center of that heap, a nugget of precious gold. And he said, you know, sometimes you got to weed through a lot of you know what to get to that nugget of gold to hear uh, that useful information. So when we recognize God's our defender, we don't have to fly off the handle. We can say, okay, God's going to, God's going to deal with whatever. And you know what? I can actually listen to this person. And even though maybe I think they're wrong and off base in a lot of what they're saying, there's probably something in there that maybe I can take away, maybe be helpful for me to consider. We see this ultimately fulfilled, of course, folks, in, uh, in what Christ does. You think about Christ coming and and they're preparing to crucify him and he's at his trial. And you remember that scene, probably, if you're at all familiar with the, the Passion Week, the story of Christ and his death and resurrection. But I'll I'll highlight it from Isaiah chapter 53. You don't need to turn there. It's just one short verse. It says about Jesus there that as a sheep before his shearers was silent. So was he. So was the servant of the Lord. You know, you read those accounts in the Gospels of Jesus uh, being ridiculed, being mocked, ultimately being tortured, uh, being criticized. And, you, you know, if you if you know who he is and recognize the biblical teaching about who Jesus is, snap of his fingers. He can wipe out all those people that are in control of him at that moment. And yet he chooses just to be silent. He chooses to be silent. He spoke at certain points, but at that certain moment, he chose to be silent, knowing that God was his defender. What a, what a picture for you and me. Second thing we see is this guy, Ziba. Uh, Ziba, we see uh, with him that, that, that David resists retribution because he knows that God is a just judge. So with Shimei, we see David realizing God's the defender. Here we see that he recognized God is a just judge judge. Uh, let's remind ourselves of the story with Ziba. Ziba's uh, connected to the household, I guess, superintends the household of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is this sort of one remaining, and he's sort of lame, uh, not, not able to move, uh, son of Saul, or from, from the family of Saul. 
And so they're living together in this big household. And if you put together the scene, going back a couple of chapters, Ziba comes to David and says, hey, uh, uh, you know, Mephibosheth couldn't get here, but I'm here. You know, I'll, I'll stay and represent your case behind as you're going and have to flee. And David's looking for all the friends he can get to. He says, Ziba, okay, well, Mephibosheth's going to roll that way. I, I was so kind to him and generous to him. Then, uh, then Ziba, you can have all the property. I'm going to give it to you. Now all this stuff is shaped out, and Absalom's back out, and David's coming back in. And look who's the first one, front and center. He's the ultimate Fairweather fan. Zeba's right up at the river. You like the picture, too, don't you? They don't even wait till he gets across the river, and they come over to him. How quickly can we fall down and grovel at your feet, uh, David? Uh, this is the picture with Zeba. And, and what we see with, with David here, I think, is this. He doesn't, he's not going to sort all this out. He's not sure who's saying what or who's telling the truth. He knows, you know, God's ultimately going to work this out. So finally, he just says, you know what? You guys just divvy it up. Okay, I'm not going to try to sort this out. But but his response could have been quite different, couldn't it? He trusts that God is the just judge. And sometimes that's true for you and for me, too. In relational situations where uh, maybe we want to try to tease them out and figure them out, and we just have to take a step back and say, you know what? God's going to work this out. I don't know. I can't figure out where this person's coming from or what angle this coworker is pursuing or who this person is that's trying to maneuver. I'm just going to entrust it to God. David trusts God in that way. And then lastly, Mephibosheth. Now take a look with me at that. I guess it's verse 24 and following where it describes Mephibosheth. And I think this is a, a really fascinating part of these verses. Because uh, David, again, does not have to accept Mephibosheth's apology. And it sounds like Mephibosheth got tricked. You know, he got kind of left behind. But it's interesting, as David extends grace to this guy, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth knows, hey, I didn't deserve any of this anyway. I was supposed to be killed. Well, as the new king comes in, he usually wipes out all the other guys' house. And yet David had sought to have... One of Saul's household, Mephibosheth, be at his table together, dine with him. It makes me think of Mephibosheth's interaction with David of that thief on the cross. Remember that? And again, around the time of the crucifixion, well, at the crucifixion, where there's the two thieves on the cross. and, And the one is responding to Jesus in a particular way. He's angry and sort of taunting Jesus. You know, why don't you do something? Aren't you help us get, get it together, Jesus? You can do that. And the other thief realizes, you know, uh, I don't deserve any mercy from you, Jesus, but I recognize who you are. And uh, I plead with you to show me your mercy and kindness. Mephibosheth's kind of kind of like that in this scene. He, he, get, he seems to be the one, the most who gets What's going on and gets the grace he's being shown so much so that at the end, you see, he says, you know what? Just let Ziba have all the property. I don't even care about that. I'm just happy to be back in the favor of the king. Happy to have my case heard. Maybe a little bit like, uh, two, uh, maybe a lesser known passage for us. The Syrophoenician woman. I know we all read that every day for our devotional. Try looking it up in the uh, Bible search. Syrophoenician. You get styrofoam. Styrofoam woman. Um, Syrophoenician, <clears throat> Syrophoenician woman, it's a passage in the Gospels. You can look it up sometime. And it's this woman that comes to Jesus, an interesting little, little, little section. And, and she's, 
Jesus is talking about salvation and what he's doing to, for, the, for the Jewish people. And he, of course, is wanting that eventually to be extended to the Gentiles. But at the time, he's focusing his ministry on the Jews. And, and she comes and she's a, she's a Gentile woman. So she's an outsider. She knows she doesn't deserve anything from him. And yet she comes and she asks if, if he would show her kindness and show her grace. And Jesus responds kind of harshly. If you read the passage, it sort of sets you back on your heels. Oh, what, what happened to loving, gracious Jesus? He says, you know, what have I got to do with you? You know, I don't have anything to do with you. My, my ministry is right now to the, to the Hebrew people. And she says to him, she says, well, yes, but even the dogs, the dogs was the Jews term, you know, derogatory towards the Gentiles, towards the outsiders spiritually. She says, even the dogs get to have the scraps from the table. Even the dogs get to have the scraps from the table. She says, if, if I can just have the leftovers of your mercy, the leftovers of your kingdom and grace, I'd be delighted to have that. Mephibosheth's kind of in that mode, isn't he? And maybe if you're like me, you recognize yourself in that as well today. We, uh, we really sung about it earlier in our worship service, our song Arise. <clears throat> if you want to look back in your worship gu- guide, it really speaks to all of this, that, that Jesus is showing us this kindness of allowing you and me to have reunion with him, that David is kind of a picture of that. You know, arise, my soul, arise. I, I love verses like this. Uh, Dax was talking earlier about the Lord's Prayer and how you sometimes you see something new and other people help give you insight. And you know, songs sometimes do that. And, and it's, it's this idea that we call out to ourselves. You know, it sort of almost sounds schizophrenic. I, I'm going to speak to my own <clears throat> self, my own soul, and say, rise up, arise, self, and shake off your fears. <clears throat> it talks about the surety, the one who guarantees the, the standing uh, before the judge, the blood that's atoned for every race and sprinkles now the throne of grace. And then it finishes this way. My God is reconciled. Reunion. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. Don't you love that picture again? The gospel where his child were invited in to be loved, but we're also owned by him. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. That means I draw close. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. It's a picture of the gospel for us today. It's a picture laid out in these verses for us as well. And a beautiful picture it is. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the reconciliation, the reunion that we can have with you uh, through Christ. And we thank you for how that reconciliation then can shape how we deal with those around us that maybe uh, we've got issues with, frankly. And uh, we need your direction. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that uh, you are our defender and so we don't always have to defend ourselves. Uh, that you are the just judge, so we don't always have to sort out where everybody's coming from. Uh, you know those things. And that we can forgive, receive apologies as with Mephibosheth, because you are the forgiving one. Lord, thank you for this, your good word, the things that it teaches us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.